Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This can't be it. There has to be more. Wait, am I crazy? No. If you're yearning for more and working hard to make your dreams a reality, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Dreamcatchers. It's the only show committed to helping you self-actualize and then transcend, leaving you with the legacy you've always desired. Listen in on conversations with successful philanthropists, entrepreneurs, and founders every week as we connect with them for inspiration, education, and direction. Your host, Jerome Myers, is here to help you exit the matrix and transform into a leader of your own revolution. The question is, do you believe your dreams should be real? Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Dreamcatchers podcast. I'm your host, Jerome, and I have Erica Barnhart with me today. How are things out on the West Coast? Things are splendiferous on the West Coast. There's sunshine. And when you're on, well, I'm in the Northwest, so I'm based in Seattle. Whenever it's winter and there's sunshine, it's a good day. Oh, so is it true? Like rain's there all the time in Seattle? Okay, here's here's the truth of it. It is often quite gray and drizzly, but like the volume of rain compared to many other places is not very impressive. It just, it kind of like, you know, it's like a slow roll. But I would think, see, the thing that gets most of us down, including myself to some extent, is that it's gray a lot of the time. Like it's overcast. Yeah. And day mm. after day of overcast gets, you know, you're kind of like, nah, okay. And we're just, you know, north enough that it gets, you know, it gets dark pretty early in the winter. And yeah. so now we're all psyched because the sun is setting after 5 p.m. and it's rising closer and closer to 7. And I'm a total morning person. So there's, in the winter, there's a long stretch of time where I'm I'm up and doing my morning stuff, and it's dark, like pitch dark. But that's okay with me. I like mornings no matter what. Now you said your morning stuff, so we're just going to dive in. What is what does that mean? What is the morning stuff? Yeah, so the morning stuff is whenever I share this, I, I have to be honest. I feel like a middle aged white woman cliche. I got to be like really honest because it is journaling. I mean, we'll probably talk about my love of language and the role it plays in my life and my work. So I journal first thing. I I wake up, I make a cup of tea, I journal. If I feel called, I meditate. I don't meditate all the time. It's kind of like if I if I need to access something from my subconscious that, you know, that I can't through journaling, then I'll do that. And then, you know, then there's some there's some physical therapy exercises that need to happen. It turns out every morning, every morning. So kind of like so I just sort of get my body moving and then I'm ready for the day. And so why do you think that's important? There's a bunch of different perspectives out there. 
One, just go right into work. One, check your phone. One, don't look at your phone. One, journal. One, meditate. Like there's all these different ideas out there on how to move into the day. How'd you pick yours? I mean, my my question for folks who are noodling through how should, like, what should my morning ritual be or, you know, my sequence of events? My question is, what's going to set you up for success for your day? Okay. And so that's why I don't always meditate because there's some days I'm like, I'm good. Like I've, I've connected with self. I'm clear on my intention for the day. I'm good. So for me, it is what are the things that I can do where kind of honestly, if nothing else goes the way I expect or wanted to in the day, it's still a successful day because I've started it out in a way that feels good to me. So there's yeah. no, it really bothers me that, well, also, you know, in North American culture, early risers are really rewarded. You know, it's like, it's like, it's a, it's like you're a better human or something. Even in high school, I woke up at 515. I'm just, that that's just my natural default setting. It doesn't, it just means I'm a, a morning person. So I really feel for folks for whom that's not true. And I feel, and this comes up, you know, when, when I'm doing advising with some of my leaders, where they feel like guilty or even like tipping into shame about the fact that they don't like wake up like Tigger every morning. I'm like, well, guess what? I am useless after 8 p.m. N- nothing. And I say this Cinderella to my clients. lost up. her slipper. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, don't, I, I literally say you will never get anything from me after 8 p.m. Because I can't commit to, to like high quality work after 8 p.m. So don't be offended. Now, you might get things from me at 5.30 in the morning, but never in the evening. And I don't check email. So I think it, it, it's, I think that there's even a question of, do you need a morning routine? Like, does that serve you? Or maybe for you, if you're more of an evening person, what is that thing that centers you that you do in the evening? But pick the time and day where it's like still the idea is what's going to make you feel successful and centered, you know, like tapping into who you are and self is so important and hard given where we're at. So what's, what's interesting is you 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 kind of dropped it in. We, we've talked about breadcrumbs already today before the recording and here you are dropping in the breadcrumbs. So you advise leaders? Why do they need advisors? Like, uh, what is this thing that you're talking about? Yeah. So, in I mean, you could call it coaching, you can call it strategic advising, whatever you want to call it. Daily, I'm not as hung up on that particular word so much as the results I get for folks. So, I mean, fundamentally, the work I do professionally is to help clients communicate with clarity and confidence. And so I'll work with leaders who, you know, kind of know that they, if they improve their communication skills, and we can talk about what improve means, they would be more effective as a leader. And again, they get to define what effective means as a leader. And then with organ- at the organizational level, messaging and external marketing. And so all words, all this, but that's what I do with leaders. And again, it all comes back to communicating with clarity and confidence, whether that's you as a leader, you as a team, or you as an organization. So communicate, I feel like that's a really complicated word. Tell me more about communication, because I, I don't think it's just the words, but you you dropped in communication, clarity, and confidence. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people fumble, mumble, are uncomfortable, don't want to be the center of attention, even though they're called to lead. Yeah. Like, let's go there because yeah. I think that's where you truly live and maybe it the is. journey <laughs> on how you got there and why it you like it. So I, one thing that is helpful, there's so many different bunny trails we could hop down in this moment. So I'm going to try to stay focused and linear. 
somewhat. Communication fundamentally is, it, it's, it's always at least two messages, right? There's what you want to say. So there's your message when it's sent. And then there's the message that is received, right? And this is what makes it complicated, right? Is so I'm talking to you, Jerome. I might have a sense of what I want you to be hearing, but I actually never know what you've heard or what has been received, right? So John Powell has this beautiful quote, which I won't get it word for word. I'll paraphrase it. He says, I can never know. I, I can only know what has left my mind and heart. I can never know what has landed in your mind and heart. And so my work is to ensure that what has left my mind and heart arrives in your mind and heart intact and without distortion. So this is where like always like, did it, did it arrive intact or was it distorted? And the thing with communication is, yes, it is words. Words are important. It's a fundamental building block. But so is pacing. So is intonation. So is silence. Like, all of these things factor in. And so it's so multifaceted. And, you know, you mentioned leaders who are like, I don't want to be the center of attention. It's actually a super beautiful thing. Right? So these are leaders, maybe servant leaders, you know, people who the idea of like leading from behind is very resonant for them, which is, again, that's beautiful. And also you are the leader. And so, you know, whether or not that's little L or big L, if you are leading, there are expectations um, of you. And so it's not a matter of learning to communicate like someone else, like we perceive a leader to communicate. It's a hundred percent about like, so what does that mean for you? How do you want to communicate? Right? Like just like bringing out the naturalness of how someone communicates in a way that their message can be received. So that's, I would say that like one of the biggest shifts is just a lot of wondering and awareness about how something less, less focus on, you know, if it's spoken, what's coming out of my mouth and much more on like, how is that being received? So that, you know, checking in a lot, you know, it's a leadership skill. So that's, and then we were just, we were talking about this book, Jerome, The Three Laws of Performance by Steve Zaffron and Dave Logan. And I read you one quote, but can I, can I read from this? Cause it seems Absolutely. super pertinent. Okay. They say, language is the means through which your future is already written. They go on to say, untying the knots, what they refer to as the knots of language, begins with seeing that whenever you say something, other communication is carried along with it. We call this phenomenon the unsaid but communicated. And I think for leaders, this is so critical. Whether or not you're leading in your personal life or your professional life, right? So I, I use term leaders very broadly. Like the phenomenon of the unsaid but communicated. And I paraphrase that as what is received. So this one's really interesting for me because I think, particularly women, they're looking for that part, the unsaid, right? And yeah, we are biologically, neurologically tuned in, hundred percent. They're interpreting things that may not have ever been thought of by the other person are read by the woman. And I've always found it interesting because one of my rules is no sarcasm. Ooh, that's a good no one. sarcasm because I think communication is difficult enough. So to say something and expect somebody to pick up on something other than the words, I don't know if it's fair, mm. but we do it all the time and then we complicate it. And then we wonder why there's confusion when we say something, we don't actually mean it. That's a struggle for me. Drum. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Or it's kind of a jab and it's like, oh, I was just kidding. Like the text with the LOL on the end, that was mean. Like you meant all of it, but you put the LOL on the end because you thought that made it okay. But going to like no sarcasm mm. in 
just in personal relationships, like I always think about the five, like there is no sarcasm for me to them. And I don't want you to think about it. I don't want it to be any harder. And if I say it and some of the other stuff that gets communicated isn't congruent with it, you can ask a clarifying question, but the answer is going to be the same for me. In particular, I worked really hard at that congruency piece of uh-huh. yeah, the yeah. words actually being what's important. So I, I say all that to say for the listener out there who's questioning whether or not I'm a good communicator, it isn't just about the cadence. What would you say would make them somebody who communicates with clarity? Because I think that's part of it. Mm-hmm. Maybe confidence is the other part of it. Yeah. but. What would make them a a good or a great communicator? Because I think it's really important to get the message across. You'd have to ask how, like, right? So if you walk into whatever you want, a meeting or a presentation or whatever, like part of the clarity piece is, you know, what what do I want people to feel, know, do? What are the results or the outcomes that I'm looking to achieve? So when you start with that, and then you would have to ask, which is, by the way, about vulnerability, Right. So you have to, you have to like build in these feedback mechanisms and these feedback loops and be willing to say, you know, at the end of our conversation, Hey, Jerome, I'm just curious what landed for you. Like if you were to, if you were to paraphrase, you know, or offer the highlights of this conversation to somebody else, what would those be? And you have to do this with, with, you know, as somewhat, somewhat habitually, because if you only do it periodically, people are like, what's happening? You know, like, <laughs> am I in trouble? But if you're just somebody who asks and, you know, on a regular basis. Honestly, it's the only way you're gonna know. You can look at action taken for sure, but you don't. You don't really know what else has happened, what other interventions might have happened. So, and it's easier, I think, to, you know, to get feedback when it's one on one. It can be a little trickier when it's one to many. But the fundamental is the fundamental, which is you're gonna ask what was received. What did you hear? What landed? What did you take away? I like that. I think we live in a culture now where a lot of people aren't interested in getting feedback, like they. They fear yes. feedback, right? It's terrifying. I think as leaders, sometimes people are scared to give feedback because yes. they don't, they're worried about the consequences. Yes. So yes, yes. how yes. are you guiding people through that part of the... Yeah, this is such an important question. I mean, part of this depends on the culture in which you are operating, right? So there, I just want to really say there are some cultures where asking for feedback, if you're the only one doing it, in, in this like informal, this is just part of what I do type of way, you know, it doesn't work in all cultures. However, naming it when you first start doing it, like if you feel like there is enough safety for you as a leader to start doing it, naming it, like, you know what, I've identified communication as something I really want to improve. And notice what notice what is being modeled here. Like if you think of the leader and, you know, somebody who reports to this person, what they've just allowed is like, it's okay not to have it all figured out all the time. So I like I really want to improve my communication. I want to make sure that I am supporting you to the greatest extent possible. And communication is so key. And I'm not sure I'm awesome at that or, you know, whatever, however you're going to say it. So it's your words. So I just want to let you know, this is, this is a me thing, but I need your help. I need your help. And so just know that as we go forward, we don't need to start this today. If you're open to it, great. But going forward, I'm, I'm going to be asking for your feedback. And I know that can be a little... Weird and frankly scary because I am your supervisor, insert word. But please know your input will make me a better leader. And I appreciate that in advance. And it will never be used against you. I genuinely want to hear it. And 
you got to be in a space of I'm, I genuinely want to hear it. And, you know, it should be it should be your words about what how you want that experience to be. But you need to acknowledge their role in it and acknowledge positional authority and psychological safety as you introduce this new habit. I think the single best thing I did to become a better communicator was insert the acknowledgement part. Oh, yeah. Acknowledgement is key. Because I just move on to the thing, right? It, well, that's what I used to do. It was, hey, da-da-da-da-da. Okay. Well, we're going to fix it. And it's like, wait, what? I've got feelings. and like, <laughs> Yeah. So I just learned this from another female entrepreneur. And I hadn't, I hadn't actually thought about it as like a practice, like acknowledgement as a practice. But that's sort of what we were talking about. And, you know, some folks do naturally other folks that, you know, comes because you realize the power of it. But what she shared, which really resonated with me, and I, I just hadn't quite thought about it this way, is I could say to you, Jerome, today in this moment, what do you want to be acknowledged for? What can I acknowledge you for? Yeah. And then genuinely, what can I acknowledge you for, Jerome, today? Curiosity. Jerome, I really want to acknowledge, and I've truly noticed this about you, I acknowledge that you really value curiosity and you bring out the best aspects of people. I acknowledge that. That feels good. Right? Yeah. When she first said it, I was like, that seems really contrived. She's like, let's give it a whirl. And then now I've started to like adopt it as a practice. It's powerful. Like you knew that I was going to acknowledge because I told you. It. I told you what to do and you did it. And it was amazing. I think so many people are scared. I, I know for me in particular, there will be times that I don't ask because I don't want the person to say no. Yeah. And I, I remember last week I was in situations where I knew I could help people and I didn't tell them that I could help them. Mm. And I felt all kinds of conflict on the backside of that. I felt out of alignment. I felt incongruent. Mm. And it was only because of my ego and me being worried that the person would be like, no, you can't. Or what? Have you, how? How? Prove it. And all of those things. And that's not accurate. Like, that's not the answer. Well, but that was just you being human, right? Because underneath all of those hypothetical, prove it, how do you do that, blah, 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 is like a fear of rejection. For sure. Right? And what we all want is acceptance, which is a high bar in belonging. So let's go there. Since you, you bring those words in, acceptance. How does communication help people get to that place? Because it's necessary, right? If I'm going to show you that I accept you, I've got to communicate that message to you. Yeah. It starts with self-acceptance. I mean, fundamentally, the only person who needs to accept you, well, not fundamentally, and not the only, but the first person that has to accept you is you. And I actually think that's your toughest customer. So before, it's actually much more comfortable to go external. And like, and when you're not going to be universally accepted, I mean, if you think about it, like, do you like everybody you meet? Right. And so everyone's not going to like you. That's totally okay. Right. So I think being very intentional about both in what spaces is it important to you to feel accepted? And then why? Why is it important for you to feel accepted in those spaces? And that allows you to show up right, in the way and use communication in a way that serves you and serves the people who you're with. I think acceptance is a, is a really interesting concept for leaders to think about because when you hold positional authority, it's, it, I, you know, some, I wonder if it's as much about accepting the person 
as it is about being clear on expectations and results. Like, is it about the method or mm-hmm. is it about the outcomes? I may not love how somebody does something, but I'm a very results-driven leader. Like, if you want to do this thing in a way that I'm like, I don't even know what you're doing, which sometimes happens, I, I have to, because, because I've said to them, I, you know, however you want to get to the result, as long as you're doing no harm along the way, of course, that's kind of up to you, but that's not how everybody leads. So I, I think that there is a piece about, are you, a, are you process focused or results focused? And they're not linear. It's, you know, it's sort of a polarity to a certain extent, but what's your balance between those things, right? And how are you managing expectations? But as a leader, you're going to probably have to lead people, manage people who you, I, you know, I think it's a, I think that that's an individual choice around uh, acceptance. So it says acceptance of results. This is acceptance of the person. What are you, what are you or who are you accepting? So that part is interesting because I see a lot of people believe that they are the work. They are the results. And that's not true. And if I reject the results, then I reject them as a person. That's not true. This isn't good. You didn't, this isn't your best work. And it's, (laughs) I see it more with my kids than anything else because they're at the age where pleasing is really important for them. And so if like my daughter got a B on her report card and I was like, you're a student, what are you doing? And she said, well, blah, blah. I was like, did you do your best though? And she's like, I did not. And I said, Mm -hmm. so it's reflective of your effort. Is it worth the effort to get a true reflection in the grades of what you do? And I think we got through that one well, but I know plenty of other situations where I didn't get through it well. And you you said that you use the word leader broadly, and I just think leadership exists everywhere. Yeah. Anytime somebody's looking yeah. for us to help them get a, a result, we're leading. Right. And, you know, it's not just in the workplace. It's not at home. It, it's everywhere you go. A leader is a leader is a leader, whether they have the position, the positional authority or not. Well, it's why I like thinking about leading as opposed to being a leader. I mean, one is about doing and one is about being an identity. So it feels different. And I approach it differently when I think about leading as a verb. We do have. So you yeah. talked about being versus doing. We, you you brought it up and you choose your words intentionally. So it wasn't just the thing. Can we go deeper for the listeners here? Because it's a really important concept for my. Yeah, it's important. A lot of people want to unlock their ultimate potential, but lack the strategy, support and stamina necessary to achieve their major goals. They often try to overcome these challenges by trying to do it on their own, causing frustration, fatigue, and eventually failure. We have developed a model for a center life, a.k.a. the red pill, to help them bolster their beliefs, gain clarity on their path to success, and provide accountability as they take action on their goals. When they take the red pill, they rapidly accelerate attainment of their goals and begin to experience a life of significance and impact. Want to find out more? Hop over to JeromeMyers.co. Now, let's get back to the episode. What is the difference between being and doing? To me, doing are things that can change over time and in more rapid succession. And I'll come back to an example. Whereas being is about at your core, who are you? 
And that can also shift over time. I mean, you do a lot of really beautiful work around identity and self-image. So that that there can be overlap. Like you can do enough things so that you become someone who does these things. But I think being is, is much more about identity and doing is about roles and action. So being the person, identity. Who who determines our identity? Mm-hmm. Hmm. I mean, that that this to me is the fundamental question about who's authoring your life. So are you going are you going to identify your own identity or are you going to allow others? And sometimes it's not up to you. So not all the things are up to you. So, you know, focus on the things that are. And I would say if you're somebody who wants to shift your, your identity and your, via maybe your self-image, there's, there's a universe of things that you can and can't control. So I think there's some external. I think we're, the, the scales tip is that we're kind of socialized to give away all of our power and to let others almost entirely define who we are as opposed to that clarity of who we want to be. And I say this as someone, I just want to be clear about my positionality, right? Like I hold a title of professor. The way I view that, I mean, that comes with so much privilege, a little bit earned, mainly unearned, right? But it comes with a, just a whole collection. And what, what that means, and, and to me, that's about something I, I do, but it's not who I am. However, it holds so much, it's so charged that when I am in certain spaces, I have to be mindful of that is who I am in that space. I am a professor. Right. And so when, when the identities are loaded like that, I think that's some of the work of being really aware of what it comes with and, you know, which pieces you own and don't own in that. So you're working with leaders in businesses. They have this positional authority. What do you teach them about titles? Do you teach them to put them away? Do you teach them to show up with them? Is that part of the? Messaging, like, that's interesting. Yeah, it also depends on the culture of the organization. So I work with purpose-driven clients. So they're in foundations and nonprofits. and But, you know, my, my common denominator with all my clients is they very fundamentally want to make the world a better place. However they want to do that, you know, that, that takes on a lot, of, a lot of shapes. So, you know, I say titles have different meaning in different contexts. And... It, and for me, part of it is like, maybe that title really, it, it's important to you, right? And you want to take it on as part of your identity. So there's that balance of like, what do I want to take on? Like, I worked hard to become, you know, a director or a CEO or whatever it is. Like, I want to fully own that. And others are like, I feel, you know, maybe they have a less hierarchical structure and that that can actually work against them. So I go back to like, if we're looking at results... How do you want to think about the titles that come with your current position and what's going to lead to service and success? Like just always coming back to that. And then I, you know, I work a lot around personal purpose and get, you know, helping my clients get grounded and like, what is your purpose? I'm sure you, you know, do this work as well. And that's when it, doing that, this is a moment where it can be helpful to come back to that. But the titles usually are bestowed from external. We talked about internal versus external. Do you have any thoughts around communicating with yourself? Yeah. What does it mean to you? I mean, I really had to do the work on this around because there was, so I taught for a really long time. So, you know, I wear these, I refer to myself as a pracademic, which is a practitioner and an academic. (laughs) 
So I've taught in a bunch of capacities and didn't have the title of professor in my title. So I've experienced doing very similar work, the doing as a, oh my gosh, I don't even know how many, lecturer and senior lecturer and guest and, you know, all these things. And then there was a transition, so get external, where for a lot of actually excellent reasons, they, they created a track, which was a teaching professor track. And so my title changed, like literally overnight. And so I really had to reflect on, I'm doing the same thing. I'm the same person. How is this going to, how is this going to show up and how I show up? And the thing about the term professor is it's like, it's shorthand, right? So it, it like, it's like an easy thing to say. Like, what do you do? Well, I'm a professor. And, but I realized that actually stalled out a lot of conversations. It wasn't an invitation for the conversation to go further. It actually stopped people because they're like, oh, now, you know, whatever. They're like, end up having all their feels like you're, you're a professor. I'm like, it's not like, what's not like that? And I like kind of had to a little bit explain it away. So, I, so I, you, you have to do the self-reflection first because it is yeah. given to you. The titles are given to you. I mean, this is a classic example. It was just literally, they flipped a switch and I had a different title. That doesn't sound like, and I mean, it's just, I'll never forget somebody telling me I had to lay half of my team off and how I felt like I just, all the control or all the power I had being evaporated in that instance. Yeah, but this is an example of, you know, from a title perspective, I got a, a title promotion because of the currency of it. So it sort of elevated to me the amount of unearned privilege that came along with my title. And that was part of what I had to grapple with. So, it, you know, sometimes it can be additive and other times it goes in the other direction. So how did you get here? Like what, what was the journey? Because I mean, the depth of work that you had to do isn't something that most people are willing to do. And then to go out into the world and work with the folks who are on a mission you know, they're working in their purpose and on purpose. Maybe. It just takes it to a different level. So how how did we arrive here? Yeah, how did we arrive here, Jerome? It's a great question. I always joke like I need to come up with a more linear response to this. But then I realize maybe it, it's freeing for people to understand that most paths to wherever we land are not linear. I didn't, it wasn't like I, it, I wasn't catching a dream. I didn't like set out to be a pracademic and to sort of be a communication expert. I'll say one of the things that, that definitely left an imprint on me is that so I was born in Vancouver, Canada, and we moved down to to American parents. So I'm American, born in Canada to American parents. But I did kindergarten through grade two in French immersion. So although I, you know, at home spoke English and a lot of school spoke English, I could only read and write in French. So we moved down the summer between grades two and three, and my mom spent a lot of time teaching me how to read and write in English. But I have very distinct memories of the first days of grade three. <laughs> and the teacher thought it'd be a fantastic idea to have me sing the Canadian national anthem in French. Yeah, if you would ever like to feel very alienated very quickly and like you have sprouted three heads all at the same time, I recommend this approach, you know, like... Seriously, like, and then we went on to recess and kids were like, oh, I don't know about that, who's she? But I had this sense of urgency around learning English, reading, writing English. And this goes back to belonging. Like, I didn't, I didn't want to be weird, you know? I wanted to belong. And I had this professor who referred to this as 
Do you remember the show in like the 90s, ALF? Yeah, okay, so alien. for listeners who are not familiar, ALF was an alien and he looked like, not like a green alien, but he was he was like a, a cartoon, wow. like a, yeah. yeah, like a brown aardvark, kind of. So he looked very different, but he talked and acted exactly like an American teenager. And so this professor referred to ALF syndrome, which is like, you externally look different, but, but in every other way, you were like, whatever the group is. And then there's reverse ALF syndrome, where, you know, for listeners, you can't see I'm blonde hair, blue eyed, white woman, white kid at the time. So I looked, you know, I fit in in terms of appearance. And then I opened my mouth and I was like, I don't, I just didn't know quite how to navigate. And I felt very othered. And so I, I think I developed a very early deep appreciation for the power of language and it's, and how it can be currency and how it can help you navigate and create a sense of belonging. I was just always drawn to words. I, I grew up, you know, everybody thought I'd be a lawyer. I thought I'd be a lawyer. I was going to do international law. And then I worked for lawyers and was like, it's the was fun to like that. But that even was driven by like, it seemed like a way where I could use my skills and make the world a better place. And so, you know, then there were some twists and turns in the roads. So I moved back up to Canada. Then I came back down to the University of Washington and got my master's degree in public administration. There was this really interesting moment where I'm still very good friends with all the people who are here for this conversation. They don't remember this conversation, but it was really pivotal for me, which is we were about to finish. We were like months away from finishing our, our master's degrees. And we were talking about what are we going to do next? And in my mind, I'm like, I have no idea. I don't know. I've done a bunch of interesting stuff, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> one woman turned to me and said, well, you're so lucky, Erica, because it's so obvious what you'll do. And I was like, isn't what, what am I? I literally was like, what am I going to do? She's like, well, you're going to do something in communication and marketing. And I was like, and everybody was like, well, clearly, you know, lots of head nodding. Clearly, you can do something in communication and marketing and words and language. And I was like, ah, oh, that, OK, that seems like a good idea. That, that, that seems like a good idea. And so I did. And it's just, you know, it's ebbed and flowed. And I, but I haven't had like a, I want to do this, you know, even. Becoming a consultant and a strategist for my clients, I thought that was that was 19 years ago, um, and I know that because I was pregnant with my with my daughter who was now 18 and a half, and I had I was six months pregnant, and I was working for a nonprofit and was summarily let go with no warning at six months pregnant. Yeah, and that you know for somebody who a lot of my identity was around achieving and achievement and external validation, that took me I mean really years to get over. It was so damaging. And it rushed us just a sort of business decision and literally had nothing to do with me. We can go into it. But so I started, you know, as soon as people found out, they're like, oh, can you can you help us? Like, I, you know, I was a good writer, a good communicator. Will you do this? And I thought, well, I'll do this for a bit. And then after I'd done that for like a year and a half, I was like, maybe this is a thing. <laughs> maybe I'll just keep doing this. And so that's that's how that happened. And then somebody invited me to teach. So I started teaching. Yeah. And then I... You know, I just, I got progressively geekier about language because I think it's, I mean, in terms of the confidence piece, it's not confidence like swagger that matters to me at all for my clients. It's really self-confidence, but that doesn't have as nice of a ring to it, by the way. I, you know, I help clients communicate with clarity and self-confidence. I don't, you know, it doesn't, but a big piece of it is self-confidence, whether or not that's at the individual level for the leader or the organizational level, just that sense of like, this is who we are. This is who we are. And I know how to talk about that. And I know how to communicate about that. I, you know, I really, I love research. 
I do, you know, I do my own research and I'm always, always, always looking for, you know, new research that I can share. So I just kind of got progressively geekier on the whole thing because it seemed fun. You know, <laughs> that's why you have a good time. <laughs> this class I was teaching this a couple of years ago, and I really love the book, The Secret Life of Pronouns, for anyone who's interested, by James Pennymaker, a wonderful scholar. And so we were talking about the book and I, I get like this all amped up. And one of my students deadpan says, Erica, I think you need to get out a little bit more. <laughs> I was like, okay, Nerd. it's probably a bear boy. <laughs> yeah. So it's, you know, I've always felt called to do my part to make the world a better place, kind of intrinsically. And then, you know, I think language for the reasons I shared always felt like a path to to do that. But there wasn't like a grand master plan for darn sure. Well, I think there was. It might not have been yours, but it worked out. <laughs> That's very true. So you got a podcast. I do. You were on wow. my podcast. I love that conversation. Tell the listeners a little bit about it. Yeah. So the name of the podcast is Communicate for Good. And it's really, it's, it's an exploration of how can you use communication to make the world a better place, whether that's you communicating as a leader, as a team, as an organization. Because my premise is that it starts with self, for sure. You know, your first cause, it starts with you. So, but when you're thinking about communicate for good, the bar that I invite people to try to reach or at least wonder about is how can I communicate so it's for the good of myself, the good of my team, the good of the organization and the good of the world. And the first three of those, you know, that's the ripple effect out to the world. So if you can keep an integrity with that at each level, then by extension, it goes out to the world. So we go over, you know, it goes in a lot of different directions. Some of it's like brass tacks, you know, I have a method and we're going to go back to the Claxon method. You know, what does success look like? Who's your target audience? How are you going to reach them? Whether or not your target audience is, you know, somebody you're supervising, you know, or a much bigger audience. So we, some of it's brass tacks, but it's, it's kind of, it's a larger exploration of what role can language play in the work of making the world a better place. So, what dream are you most focused on catching next? You know, identifying dreams proactively is kind of new territory for me. You know, I, I know it's like I'm quite an ambitious, I'd say in the positive sense of the word, I'm an ambitious person, but I think I've been very goal oriented, but not, I like I haven't allowed myself to be like, what is the next dream I want to catch? Right. But I have been reflecting on that. I had like a milestone anniversary last year, which starts with five. And so that that really does make you start thinking about life. And I realized like a lot of what speaks to me now is about memories and the memories that I'm creating. I don't know if that's a dream per se. Also, you know, bringing communication baffles so many people and yet to a great extent it is a dynamic to be managed not a problem to be solved per se but there's so many things that like when you hear them you're like ah and then you and then that self-confidence comes right and then you can speak with more clarity and so helping even more people like sort of service at scale is a dream for me like i, I just i don't want leaders wondering you know i don't want them feeling badly about how they communicate because it's not necessary like there, there is a skill set and a mindset you know so one of the things i talk a lot about is that words matter because they are matter yes like anything you can touch in our universe 
it's matter, right? So that we're like, well, of course, my book, that matter. So are words. And we sort of put words in a different category and we put communication in a different category. But actually, they, 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 they abide by the exact same fundamental rules that any matter does. The rules of physics, you know, the laws of physics and thermodynamics. And once you understand that, it's like, oh, what? Oh, that's in, like, okay. Now I'm going to think about like, if you're writing an email and you're pressed for time, notice the first and last sentence. If you're even more pressed for time, notice the first verb and the last verb. Notice how you close it out, right? Just pay attention to the small close to you things because they, they will, for every action, there's an opposite and equal reaction. So what are you putting out to the world? It's going to come back to you, right? And just getting in that habit of mind, right? That's not hard. It's truly not. Like I coach hundreds of people at this point, work for thousands of organizations, right? So it's a, I think that that's what can, I don't know if it's a dream. I, maybe I put in the dream category of like just a world where if you are on a mission to make the world a better place, you have access to that knowledge. How will you know that you realized it? I don't know. See, I don't think, I don't know quantifiable because like the whole ding dang world is kind of big. Do I have to know that I've achieved it? Well, I want to know that we made the dream a reality. So yeah. Okay. Then I'm going to have to get back to you because I would need to like. No, it's, it's in the moment. It is the thing. What is the thing? I'm challenging you today. This is the second challenge of the day. (laughs) One off air, one on. Come on, give it to us. We're all cheering for you. What is it? There are no limits. You can have whatever you want. Yeah, you know, nonprofits are what speaks to my heart. They're doing some of the hardest work on the planet with the fewest resources. So I work with big corporations too. But if if all the nonprofits in the United States and Canada, like if they didn't have to wonder where to go for that knowledge, that'd be amazing. That's how that's how I, I, I could bind my dream a little bit in that way. Does that mean that you're the best marketed communication expert in the world? Like, what does that mean? I think it means that my company, Klaxon, is the go-to resource. And that there's no mental energy, right? Like, I, I, I think a lot about resource allocation in terms of time, energy, attention, just, you know, resource allocation. I don't want them to have to, I want them to be able to allocate their resources to the learning and not the where am I going to learn it. Because there's an opportunity cost, right? Like if I have to go forage, that takes time and energy. You have such a heart for people. It's amazing. So I always wrap up these interviews with the question. And some people say it's hard. Others don't. I think you'll say it's not. What's the one thing you want the listeners to take away from that? That they already know how to communicate exactly how it's going to feel amazing to them. And they just need a little nudge in that direction. And that, that, like you use the word congruence drum a lot. And I love that word. I think it, it feels very far away for a lot of people. And I know that there's a lot of sort of guilt and shame for, for both leaders and organizations about like, we're not doing this well. We could always be doing it better. And I want them to hear you're right where you need to be. You're right where you need to be. You're always right where you need to be. You're perfect just as you are. And. You can learn this. If this is up for you, you can learn how to be even better at communicating. And you get to define what better means. Like maybe it's congruence. Maybe it's that you want to get, you know, be able to speak in front of a large crowd. Whatever that means to you, you can do it. I'm yet to meet a person or an organization who once they set the intention and they get the support they need and deserve, they can't do it. 
Erica, you are a dream catcher. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. And I look forward to Claxton being the go-to place for all nonprofits to help with their messaging and help with their leadership without having to think about it. It is just on tap. You're on speed dial. You're going to have to hire some more folks, but I think you'll be up for the challenge. I call that a high-class pro. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Jerome. I love what you're doing. I love the invitation to dream and to think bigger than at least I know I do on a daily basis oftentimes. So thank you for that. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. To the listeners, your dreams should be real. We'll talk soon. Thank you for joining the tribe today. We would love to hear from you. Please don't forget to rate, like, and share. Perhaps someone you know could benefit from what we've discussed. Until the next time, remember that your dreams should be real.